Hi. I just want to stop in and tell a moment about our um, another great and awesome small business that I just can't stop throwing money at. It's called Anomaly 8 Designs. They're available on Facebook, um, but mostly I go through their Etsy shop. They just have like the cutest earrings on the planet. They have earrings, scrunchies. Um, they've started making shirts and um, pins, like lapel pins and all kinds of stuff. And honestly, I've spent so much money through them and I just can't quit because every time I'm like, okay, no more. They're like, hey, here's a sale. Hey, here's some new designs. So stop what you're doing. Get on Etsy and search Anomaly 8 Designs. You will not regret it. Yeah. Now, another story. It's very similar, but it's got a little bit of difference. And I think it kind of just takes one of her stories and goes a little wild with it. On the night of Eddie's murder, they started fighting again. They'd both been invited to a bridge party at Mabel Young's house. Eddie was jealous of Mabel and said that Val neglected him because of her love for Mabel. Eddie refused to go to this bridge party and told Val that she could not go either. Val fought back and Eddie hit her and made her nosebleed. Val became so enraged that she picked up a hammer that she had used earlier to hang curtain rods and hit Eddie in the head with it while he sat on the bed, knocking him to the floor. He tried to get up and she hit him again. He tried to get up four times in all and Val hit him each time. Finally, when he tried to lay still, she got some twine. When he lay still, not when he tried to lay still. Finally, when he was still, she got some twine and tied up his hands and feet, put a pillowcase over his head and hit him some more and finally stopped and covered the body with a blanket. Now, that's the second version. And I know that I did forget to to finish the first version because of the ad break. I got a little sidetracked. Um, the other version says that Velma picked up a hammer just brought from the basement or fetched previously for a window repair. So same thing. Hit Eddie in the head with it. She hit him hard and he probably fell down on the floor and raged and groping blindly as blood gushed from a terrible wound in the skull. Velma's first confession was her bluntest statement on what happened. I hit him and he dropped. Eddie probably tried to get up at least once, perhaps as many as five times. So um, the chief defense attorney for Velma said that um, it's the fifth time he was still, during the fifth hit, he was probably still struggling. Velma hit him at least six, perhaps eight times in front of his head with a heavy claw hammer. After he ceased trying to get up, she pulled a pillowcase over his head and bashed him some more with a hammer. The pillowcase was to cut down the amount of blood sprayed. Then she rolled the body over and beat Eddie's skull again for a while with a leg from a broken bedroom table. Later, she said that she kept beating him even after he stopped. She's afraid he would kill her if he regained consciousness and got up, which, I mean, not defending a murderer, but yeah, like, if he gets up, he's definitely probably going to kill you, because... You just beat him with a hammer like six or seven times. Or eight. That's a lot. A lot. Given her state, which she va variously characterized as a red rage, blind rage, wild rage, she probably couldn't even remember exactly when and why she did what she did. 
But what happened next is um, pretty, pretty clear on all accounts. She washed up. She burned her, um, burned the linens, um, like anything that had blood on it, like clothing wise. Burned her own gore encrusted garments. Walked outside, smoked some cigarettes. Went and got the car keys out of his dead body's pants. And then um, left the back door wide open and drove to Mabel Young's. Now, everyone at this party said that she was the life of the party. She was laughing. She was like the top bridge winner at her table. She probably would have been the top bridge winner the entire night, but she kept going to the piano and like playing lively tunes and just like she was just the life of this party after bludgeoning her husband to death with a hammer. Okay, so her mother says, no, no, no. She was super sullen. She was like sad and she was just not having, she was just like totally torn apart by this. But like everybody at this party is like, no, no. She was having a blast and she was like the wife of the party. She had, and like a lot of people were kind of just blown away because how she acted. Um, Mabel Young recalled her entrance saying, Velma never seemed in better spirits than when she arrived at our home Tuesday evening. The vibrant personality that made her easily the most popular among the younger married girls in our set was never more in evidence. She greeted me at the door with a laugh and went immediately upstairs to fix up for the party. If I had known her mission was not so much as to use lipstick as to wash her hands of the blood of Eddie West, what a different party it would have been. Different party indeed. So she, I mean, she was just having a good old time. Even though her mother was saying, no, no, she wasn't. Everyone at the party is like, no, no, we were there. She was having a good old time and she's crazy. Also, the next thing, it's just, just kind of blows my mind that she pulled this stunt. But I mean, it also blows my mind that she beat her husband to death with a hammer. So, um, but anyway... The next day, she gets up, she has a hearty breakfast, and she leaves Mabel's house and goes with her mother Christmas shopping and buys Eddie Christmas presents. Like, after she's done beat him to death with a hammer, she goes Christmas shopping with her mother and buys her dead husband Christmas presents. Like, it just blows me away. Like, I'm just like, what was the thought process on that? Like, were you just trying to, like, cover yourself and like trying to make it not suspicious that I don't I don't know but that part just it's really caught me off guard I was like a dozen handkerchiefs for Eddie and oogling over a scarf that Eddie would just love like come on come on but during the same time that she's like Christmas shopping for dead husband stuff um the brother went to the house because Eddie didn't show up for work. And like, John's like something's wrong because he comes to like, he's not that type of person to just not show up to work and not like call and say, Hey, I'm not coming in. So, um, a couple different ways to this, that I like, I read a couple different things. And, um, one of them said the room was in chaos. Blood stains were on the floor, the walls and the bedding, a bloody hammer lay on the floor near the bed. On the floor lay a lifeless body, hands and feet bound with twine, a bloody pillowcase over the head, 
and a covered and covered by a blanket. Another report says that she um, had tried to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Um, she dragged some of the bloody bed clothes down to the cellar, smeared the walls and floors with his blood, and um, like burned anything that could be made to look like she was even there when this happened. So she, she had like, even after she killed him, she was like thinking straight. And like, okay, let's make this look like a robbery gone wrong. And then I'm going to go to the party. And like tomorrow I'm going to buy Christmas presents for him acting like I have no clue what's going on. And, um, you know, James comes in, the brother, the back door is wide open. All the lights are on. And he finally makes it upstairs. He sees his brother. And, um, his, you know, he immediately was like, I got to call the sheriff. So he calls Big Ed. And um, I'm not being funny. That's literally what they called him was Big Ed, Sheriff Ramison, Rasmussen. Sorry, Rasmussen. Let me pronounce things correctly. And of course, the, sp the spouse is always the first suspect. Like, no matter what, like, we got to clear the spouse. So what do they do? They go pick up Velma. And they're like, um, hey, your husband's dead. So Velma held up well during her first three hours of interrogation. She remained calm even after she was told of her husband's grisly death and she steadfastly insisted that she had left him in good health the night before and knew nothing about his murder. So this is a part that always kind of like, it kind of like, okay, so you set up a robbery gone wrong. You go to the party and act like nothing had happened. Like you have no clue what's going, what went down. The next day you go Christmas shopping and buy him gifts. But then when the police get you, like you're chill, you're calm, like, that that's not how a wife acts when told her husband has been grisly murdered. That's how like a suspicious person acts. Like when you're trying to like cover up, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been in this situation. So I, a lot of it is conjecture. And a lot of it is me trying to like make logic out of an insane person. So forgive me for that because I don't even know. Anyway, she tried to say, hey, I have no idea. When I left him, we we're good to go. Kiss me goodbye, you know, whatever. Um, she even said things like she remembered Eddie cranking the hubmobile for her for the party, kissing her goodbye. And um, then it's he's like, okay, I know you're, the cough was like, all right, well, let's see if we can do this. Why can't he's like, I know that you're telling me the truth, but why'd you leave the back door open? That did it. Velma was like, I got to confess. So the, this woman is nuts. Like, there's no logic to the way that she's chit-chatting and talking. I don't even know. Suddenly, Velma slumps forward, recovered, and then said, all right, I'll tell you the whole truth. I killed him after a quarrel. Then she wrote out a signed 200-word statement admitting her guilt. I did, like, you, you can't sing right now on this podcast, but, like, doing the thing where you like put your finger between your eye, your eyebrows because you're just trying to hold in your brain from exploding from this amount of stupidity. I don't know. But she, um, her statement was basis for a first degree murder charge. Um, there was lots of other details. She told lots of different conflicting stories and, um, but pretty much what she said was they quarreled Eddie hit her or he threatened to hit her. And she hit him with a hammer a number of times. 
So whatever the quibbling that Velma did about the details, however she might have switched them, changed them, whatever, the crux of her intended, intended defense was clear from the beginning. She was abused, and she killed her husband for fear of losing her own life. So, yeah. That's when the press went wild. Like I discussed in the beginning, some of them were like, oh, poor, poor Velma. And then some were like, no, she's a spoiled little girl. Um, she needs to suffer the consequences of her crime. So there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of mixed feelings about this. And um, Homer Croy was a prominent American novelist, also was recruited by the press, which is one of the, the newspapers that was just going nuts over this. Um, now, Homer Croy was recruited to analyze Velma. And to take on his and his take on her echoed Darrow's disdain for the presumed hatefulness of small town life. Velma wasn't trying to kill Eddie, Croy argued. She was simply striking out at everything that tortured her and Perry. It was the inevitable consequence of a husband trying to constrain his wife's lifestyle with psychological change. Chains. Such repression could only have one result, but when he clamped the chains on it certainly means trouble pretty soon the girl finds some sort of hammer she's not hitting the boy she's cracking her chain it's just so dumb so dumb best of all was dr h del spence of painesville whose statements must have have must have increased contemporary popularity and contempt for an alias alienist a great deal. remember an alienist is therapist, a psychologist at this time, that's what they were called. When Nina Nonberg of the news asked if Velma was insane, Del Spence delivered the goods. Define insanity for me and I will answer your question. Insanity is geographic. Her insanity means nonconformity to the beliefs and habits of her community. Perhaps 200 to 300 years from now, or possibly sooner, we, do, we will not punish such people as Velma West, we will treat them as we do the physically sick. Now, Velma, or Val, had some pretty good lawyers on her side. Richard, Richard Boswick was a 27-year-old prosecutor. He was um, called a dude, and he was celebrated for his long fur coat and derby hat. And he honed his public persona with comments like, I always mean to play the lone wolf in my practice. But he soon made it clear in a comment to the press reporter that he was going to use a self-defense strategy with Velma, a physically weak girl who accidentally, you can hear my child in the background because I have zero private life, who accidentally killed defending herself from a beating she expected and fear from a brutal husky young husband. But now Bruns Boswick, sorry, Boswick, was soon regulated to second place because Francis W. Polson, okay, now remember, he was on the team that saved Eva Haber, okay, remember her? She was um, my first podcast, saved her from the electric chair. Now, Polson had some bravado, buddy. Polson was a good lawyer. He was asked if he would move West murder file. Obviously, no matter is exactly like another. Each and every killing is unique, 
the product of a particular place, a particular time, and a particular collision of persons inhabiting, if not always sharing, a particular culture. One could look at the gory and scandalous West ordeal as a collision between the baffled rural American of Eucolic Lake County and the jazz days modernity of the Roaring Twenties Cleveland. That's how sophisticated metropolitan journalists saw it at the time. To them, Thelma's West's brutal hammer murder of her staid hubby was a virtually inevitable consequence of a big city flapper's imprudent elopement the small town stuffy to maddening boredom of rustic Perry, Ohio. Many contemporary refugees from small town America agreed, no doubt, with Clarence Darrow's deterministic justification of Velma's bloody revolt against American rectitude. He had lived in Lake County as a young man and recalled with bitterness its cramped small town ways. It's all familiar to me. He, this is his quote. It's all familiar to me. I mean the scene. I know the village of Perry. That girl was no more to blame for killing her husband than he was for being killed. It was a tragic mistake to take a frail little girl away from the life she loved and shut her away from the things she knew and yearned for. She married and went to live with the right moral dull small town. Like any other woman who had been brought up in luxury and independence, she naturally reacted against everyone when forced to continue her cramped small town life. Okay, so this, this is like a, a very reoccurring theme throughout this story. It, and it's like, it just kind of blows my mind the fact that they want to act like she like brutally murdered her husband because she wanted to go back to Cleveland and, you know, party all night long instead of living in a small town. Like I grew up in a small town. I get it. It can be boring. But, you know, I got out and I didn't have to murder anybody. So, I don't know. But the Cleveland press writer Paul Packard summed up the city country aspect of the murder more, more, uh, uh, that's a good word. Country people have little sympathy for the mysterious blonde girl who is under lock and jail here. City people see reasons why a 12-year-old girl in a 9 o'clock town might have been used to drive a hammer into her husband's head. So there's a lot of repetitiveness throughout this, going back and forth of why did she do it? And I don't know, it just it blows my mind that they think that this is like a, a good reason. So let's get started. Let's meet Velma and her childhood. So she had won three of the perfect baby contests at a theater in Cleveland. She spent most of her childhood ill with diphtheria and mastoidal problems. So temporal, it's a temporal bone behind the ear at the base of the skull. Um, she had issues with that. And um, it was talked about that she was very spoiled. Her father, Bert Van Wert, was a Cleveland traveling salesman and his wife, Catherine, um, they just spoiled her. They gave her everything she wanted. Um, she was very fragile since birth, so she was a sickly child. And um, she did survive several serious diseases. Um, she did have a life-threatening ear abscess at the age of 12. And after lingering near death a month before Velma was saved by a skull operation, um, 
but a lot of people looking back thought that this kind of um, took a very bright Velma and turned her um, into an intellectually dull girl um, who had a lot more trouble in like school and learning and such. Now, looking at Eddie, he was just like the opposite. Like where Velma was like this really sickly young girl, he was husky, athletic. He grew to be about six feet tall. He was 200 pounds. Um, growing up, he was fond of sports, especially baseball. And he was never mistaken for like studious because um, he was just that athletic and that like, like jockey in a sense. Um, but he was really smiley. He was well-liked. His parents loved him. His brothers loved him. His sisters doted on him. And he just, he was an all around, like an all around small town hero. You know, he was just a great guy. And, um, these two met, now there, there's a couple like different versions of how that they met, but, um, they, they did meet at a picnic and, um, In 1925, they met at a picnic in 1925, and Eddie was 24 and Val was 19, and some say, like, they hit it right off, Val was super lively, and um, just kind of caught the tall, dark, and handsome Eddie's heart from the beginning. Um, some people say, some say that she, you know, kind of made him really work for it, but one thing that was kind of just... To give you an idea of Val, she worked at a hardware store where she eventually lost her job because she refused to um, stop talking to boys and um, she just would do what she wanted to do. So he was like, you're a good girl. I'm trying to help you out, but you're not going to listen and stop talking to boys because remember, this is the 20s. So um, she was fired. But then, of course, she decides she's getting engaged to a 56-year-old man. Now, she's still a teenager in this, this time. She's still a teenager. So even, like, 19, which is the oldest teenage possible, 56-year-old man, William Chapman. So she was engaged to him when she met Eddie at this picnic at Perry Park. And so they just kind of, like, stunned everyone, and they eloped to Ripley, New York, on July 4th, 1926. Now, um, she did return the engagement ring to him. She didn't keep the diamond ring, but um, yeah, so it was just kind of crazy. And it just kind of talks about like how crazy it was that these two got together because like Velma is this flighty, like big city flapper girl. And Eddie is like a good, good hometown down to earth, like working at the family business in the small town. And it was just kind of crazy that these two hit it off and they were in love. But it did not surprise many people when they like were already like on the honeymoon having issues. So there's a couple accounts. Some say that they ran out of money on the honeymoon and he just kind of went and went around asking for help, like, hey, we're broke, we ran out of money, we're just having a really good honeymoon, can you guys help us out? And some say that she, like, kicked him out 
of the hotel they were at stating, don't come back unless you have some more money. So whatever happened, whether she was, you know, the, the kicking out or they just decided together, he did come home and he did like go around to his friends, his family and was like, Hey, I need some money. So his family did get him back, give him some money. And so he decided, they decided to um, finish up the honeymoon and they came back home. They came back to his home. So they went to Lake County, leaving Cleveland back to live with Eddie's family. Well, around Eddie's family. So the meeting of Velma with his family, like it kind of said like everyone tried really hard to like make this, this relationship work. And by relationship, I mean like her getting along with his family and becoming a part of it. It says getting nervous and often silly Velma's behavior with its aurora of sinful big city temptation and corruptive frivolous womanhood was a red flag to the staid rural folk of Perry. Now Perry was a mere village of 250 souls. All right. Now the Wests were a notably religious family. Okay. Eddie West, religious family. So Cleveland Press later summarized this, this collision between city and country ways by saying there was a marked tightening of the lips of the village social censors after their initial exposure the irresistible Velma. And um, so like, it just kind of was like a rocky start. They didn't really have a lot of um, good things to think about Velma. She came from a big city and to them, the big city was just like tainted with sin and evil. And they just didn't really want to have it in, you know, Perry. Perry was this perfect little place. So that, that started it. And of course, Velma wasn't ready to give up her life. She wasn't ready to give up what she had in Cleveland. And so, you know, they would still go out to Cleveland. They would still go party. But Eddie was ready to settle down and have a family. He was ready to, like, start being an adult and not a young adult where, you know, you're still kind of figuring it out. He's like, no, I know what I want to be. And this is what I want. And Wilgama's like, well, that's not what I want. Like, I still want to go party. I still want to go to Cleveland and have a good time. Like, that's what I want to do. And so it it had a, a tense on their, their marriage. But the real problem, the real trouble didn't start until July 27, 1927, when Mabel Young entered the scene. So Mabel Young and Val were like immediately BFFs. They were best friends. They hung out almost every day. And um, it's important to note that Val was wearing boys clothing and had cut her hair. Now, it's a little weird. Like it's, it's a little weird, but it's not kind of weird, if that makes any sense, because this is the 20s. So the bobs were totally in for women, especially in big cities, you know, the flapper look. And she had her hair bobbed. Like, it, when I say cut short, I don't mean, like, like high and tight or, like, a boy cut. But it was bobbed. So, but it was not that long religious hair that you would probably see in all the women of Perry. It was bobbed. But um, the boy clothes was definitely, like, you were like, oh, my God. She's a woman. And she's wearing pants. Burn her at the stake. But anyway. So, but the problem was when... Mabel and Val like couldn't get together and couldn't hang out every day they would write each other 
long letters. And it became an issue because Eddie started to get suspicious. He's like, something's going on. And he started reading her letters. Now this pissed Val off so bad that she literally went to the sheriff over it saying, my husband's opening my mail and I need him to stop. And she also was like, she had another friend in Perry where the letters would route through so that like Eddie wouldn't get a chance to get a hold of the letter before she did. So, and I looked around and like, there's not a lot to say what was on these letters um, other than it made Eddie more suspicious and like saying like something's up between you two more than just friends. Like this isn't a normal friendship letter. Especially because um, a lot of Velma's letters pledged her undying love. Like a lot of the letters that Velma was sending, which I don't know how Eddie got a hold of those. Maybe he read them before. Um, I'm not sure. But she was pledging that she was in love. And um, it just was a, a big issue. And so, she, like I said, she went to the Lake County Sheriff, Edward Rasmussen, um, also called Big Ed. And um, they had a talk and he like he talked to both Velma and Eddie. And I, I can just imagine him being like, now listen to your children. Because, you know, he's an adult and they're young adults, whatever. Um, but he thought, okay, we're good. I talked to both of them. We're good. This is over, whatever. Um, but it wasn't. And this is the part that kind of like modern day me, it bugs. Because there were several times that Velma tried to leave and say, our marriage is done. She went to her parents' house in 1927. And she said, she told her parents, my marriage is over. But of course, mom and dad are like, no, we don't get divorced. That's bad. Um, you need to go back to your husband. So she goes back to her husband. Um, and a while, but on the way there, she stops, she gets her hair cut. And it's only important to note that like she's telling everyone at this place that like her husband's beating her. He hits her. He yells at her over like every little thing. Um, like this morning, he hit her. And so... Um, Another person, while she's here getting her hair bobbed, um, heard her call Mabel and tell Mabel that Eddie was hitting her. And then she called a pharmacist, told the pharmacist, I mean, like she was telling everybody that he was hitting her. But once more, they, she went back to him. The marital fences were mended, quote unquote. And she went back and start, you know, returned to her unhappy wife in this little town of pairing and um i read another instance where she left and was told like go back to your husband you don't need to to do this and it just kind of every time that she tried to do that they're like no you need to go back you need to like make it work because you're married to him and you know your happiness doesn't matter because you're married like, not necessarily just her happiness, but, like, his either. Because there's no way that he could be happy in this marriage with her running away every chance, her going up 35 miles away to party every chance she gets, writing love letters to another person, albeit even a woman. And at that time, that was just wild. Like, that was, like, like you could probably worship Satan and get less of a look than being, you know, a lesbian. But anyway, so here's 
what um, occurred because they kept mending that broken fence. So exactly, exactly what happens next is just there's several different things. A lot of people say that like she confessed to like 15 different ways of this and different things that she did to try to cover up what she did. But um, they went, I know the day started December, Tuesday, December 6th started with her and Eddie going to the doctor for Eddie's chronic rheumatism. They're arguing with the doctor's office. They leave there. They eat a late lunch. They're arguing there. They stop at a doctor to stop to get medicine. They're arguing there. They argue the whole way back home. Um, they get home and then they're, I read two different stories. So I'm going to read them both and I'm let you decide what you think. So Elma, Elma, that's, you know, their ship name, Zelma and Eddie, they're still arguing when they get home. And it said that Eddie changed into his pajamas as if he was getting ready for bed. Now, maybe it was something he said. Perhaps it was something nasty about his suspicion, her suspicious friendship with Mabel. Um, something that, as Velma later insists, riled me. It cut me to the bone. Maybe he just refused to give her car keys. Okay, maybe he even threatened to divorce her and disgrace her, which to me, like, that one's probably not what it was because she tried to leave him multiple times and everyone just kept telling her to go back to your husband and suck it up but anyway maybe he hit her maybe not okay some versions of the story Vel velma said that she slapped him he gave her a bloody nose and other another one of velma's versions she confessed that she had something insinuate insult he that she had said something insulting and that eddie under dire threats started toward her now, let's pause for an ad break. Well, this letter just, it, I mean, people, the people who knew, like, because this was not public. So everyone, you know, the, the judge, the lawyers, they were all like, uh-oh. So because of this, they moved to lower her sentence to second-degree murder. Now, Velma, Velma pleaded guilty. And she did this because she was under the impression that she would be eligible for parole. If she could, if she would plead guilty to second degree murder, she would be eligible for parole. So um, they decided then that that's what they were going to do. She said, yes, I'll plead guilty. And this was literally done to save embarrassment. It says suddenly the two traumatized families involved in the impending trial discovered a common interest in halting the case. Over the weekend of March 3rd through the 4th, Mabel Young had submitted an eight-page deposition. The prosecution was prepared to introduce it as evidence. Okay, so the prosecution's like, yeah, I'm totally going to use this because this is why he, she killed her husband. Um, and it was going to come out that Velma West was a lesbian, and it was more probable that her unconventional sexual tendencies had figured in her husband's terrible death. Now, this is words of the time, okay? So I don't need anybody all up in my grill because I read that. But um, the news editors were so stunned that they refused to name Velma's sins. So part of this did come out because, you know, everything was leaked. Nothing's ever secret. Um, but, like, it was so wild at that time that they wouldn't even say it in the newspapers. Like, they just coyly alluded to abnormal sex proclivities 
similar to those portrayed in the French play, The Captive. So yeah. And um, in the letter, it also came out that some years previously, an older woman had seduced Velma and Velma had then begun dressing up frequently in male attire several years before she met Eddie West. And so, yeah. But they cut her a deal. She would plead guilty and none of this evidence would be released to the public. Okay, but Paulson was probably right when he argued that the prosecution intended to introduce this as a motive and um, would use it against her. But Paulson said that he would have won because he was trying to say she was insane because he argued that the prosecution intended to introduce this as a motive based on Velma's alleged lesbianism that Eddie's death was a murder of removal so Velma could concentrate on Mabel. And this would actually have helped his client because no alienist could deny Velma was insane if the reported accusations in Miss Young's statement were true. In other words, female homosexuality was considered an open and shut evidence of insanity in 1920s America. Whoa. Whoa. So, she pled guilty. She went to prison in the end. Just kidding. There's some more. Oh, Velma, she's not done. She's not done. Now, um, she did get a in trouble a lot when she first went to prison because she kept cutting her hair. She would use broken shards of glass, electric light bulbs, like cut light, like from electric light bulbs, glass from light bulbs, um, and other objects to cut it without getting caught. She... Um, also got in trouble for showing some interest in some female prisoners, you know, because lesbianism was like open and shut insanity, apparently. But the real big thing came when she, in 1938, she was not allowed to be paroled because she was still notorious for being the hammer murderess. And, but now she was a valued trustee at the prison. So after she was denied this time, this was not the first time she was denied, but after she was denied this time, she began to lose hope and her anxiety was increased by mounting fears because her health, um, especially a heart condition, was declining. Um, and she also complained of a constant noise in her ears like an airplane. So in the early morning hours of June 19th, 1939, she literally, her and three other prisoners just like walked out of the prison. Um... I don't, I don't know. Um, I know she was a trustee, so she did get away with some things. But um, at first, Margaret, um, Margaret, let me find her last name. Riley was her supervisor, and they were actually pretty close friends. She tried to be like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, but then she kind of was like, she might have had some lax security because, you know, she has all these, um, the, uh, all of these, she had all these privileges that other prisoners didn't have, and she might have been able to manipulate those to get out. Um, it was also kind of funny to me that Miss Riley, the reformatory superintendent, told the press she was considering asking for a new lock system to replace a 20-year-old one they were using at the time of the escape. 
Now remember, this is in 1939. So 20 years old, so like 1919, they created this lock system. This is not America's prison today where, you know, there is zero way that a prisoner could just walk up out of the prison and be like, peace out, I'm escaping. Okay, so 20 years old. She also considered, she was also considering a fence around the building and a guard at the front gate. So this is very much not like 21st century prison that we have in mind when we picture prisons in today's time. But they escaped in April and there was no fences or guards at the gate. So maybe it wasn't a bad idea to, you know, guard the gate, have some fences, make it a little bit more challenging to just walk up out of prison. But <clears throat> in the end, she was captured um, in Dallas. She had made it clear to Dallas. So she was captured and um, she was on her way to her room and apparently on the way to her room with a man. Of course, Margaret was like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound like Velma because, you know, she's a lesbian. Why would she be going to her room with a man? But anyway, um, they picked her up and she was just like, okay, take me. I've had my little fling. I had some fun. And, um, but honestly, she said that it wasn't really, like, she didn't really have a good time because, um, there was some different talk of, like, things that she had to do to get across America, um, sell her body, different things like that. And, um, the outside world was just hard. It was hard because she was on the run. She had to make it on her own. She had to, you know, constantly be on guard of getting caught and so she was pretty much just ready to go back to prison. She was like, yeah, I'm done. I had my fling. Um, so she went back to prison and eventually her, like, she got really sick. She was a lot sicker than she, I mean, she just got sick. She just continuously got worse off. She found religion. She entered the Roman Catholic faith and um, she often entertained her fellow inmates at Marysville singing and writing her own often gospel-based compositions. And um, her mother tried a couple times to get her out because of her health, but they didn't. Um, she literally was considered too sick to work. And um, so she did say on her faith that it may sound corny, but this is true. We pray more for others than ourselves. Every time I pray... Every time I say communion, it is for my husband. If his soul cannot be saved, I don't want mine to be saved. But her last years were difficult, and um, she was considered for parole several times, but she had nowhere to go. She died of heart disease on October 24, 1959, after wasting away to 86 pounds. She was 53. In her declining years, she was known to tell fellow prisoners, Go straight when you get out. There's still a lot of good you can do in this world. And that is the story of Velma West. Join me next week as we dive into another true crime story. So Francis Paulson was soon demoted to second team. And, um, oh no, I'm sorry, Richard Bostick, Bostwick was demoted to second place. And Francis Paulson came in. Now, Frances was on the team that helped save Eva Kaber, remember her from our first podcast, 
um, uh, saved her from the electric chair. So he was asked if he would move for a change of venue and he told the reporters, no, I will be perfectly willing even to try the case as I see it now with a member of the West family on the jury. So he was very um, confident in his ability to get her off. So a lot of stuff happened during her arraignment. Um, and it's important to note two days after, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place looking at my notes here. So she said it wasn't planned. She told the judge, you know, it wasn't planned. You know, it wasn't. I don't see how they could do it. If they had been there when it happened, I know that they would have looked at it differently because the judge said that it was um, the most unspeakable crime in the history of Lake County. Now, they just, they were trying, the her very good lawyers were trying to get her first degree murder down to second degree murder. And on, on second degree murder, you can be, um, you can get bail. And so when the judge denied lowering her um, charges to second degree murder, she started screaming. She was screaming, um, let me alone, let me alone, and then fainted, okay? Now, later, it was found out that the reason she kind of, like, flipped out is she thought the judge had um, sentenced her to the electric chair, but it's because the judge had decided not to give her bail because of the description of Eddie West's body. Corner OOH house description of the wounds on Eddie West's corpse was that there was a deep gash on the forehead and another terrible blow that destroyed one eye. Either blow would have been sufficient enough to cause death, but there were also numerous additional injuries all over the face and skull. And um, pretty much like, he was like, no, looking at and hearing what you did to him, there's no way I'm giving you bail. She thought, he said, you're going to the electric chair. So she freaked out. Now, there was a lengthy interval between her arrest and her trial, okay? But while um, she was in jail waiting for her trial, people were just going nuts. Rumors were flying. People were talking about it. Um, and this is where that come in where it was like some people were like, well, she was a big city girl and she was just in a small town and it just drove her nuts until she killed her husband. And then other people were like, no, she's a horrible person because... She killed her husband. And um, there was also a lot of talk about how she was a horrible housewife. And, like, she didn't cook, didn't clean, didn't do anything that she was supposed to do. And there was also this huge uproar in the fact that she smoked. They were like, yep, she's a killer. You know how I know? Because she's smoking. Only smokers are killers. Only killers are smokers. I don't know, but they were just like nuts at a woman smoking. They just could not fathom that that was, you know, like a thing, whatever. So, um, but then something big happened. Something big happened in the fact that Mabel Young decided that she was going to turn in an eight page letter, eight page letter.
So I didn't realize that I had that um, pause for a moment while I was reading. So after this letter came out, every, everybody involved was just like, hello, fellow crime lovers, and welcome back to Murder Obsessed. So today's story is about Velma West. So this story just really caught my attention. Um, reading a book called Women Behaving Badly, Cleveland's Most Ferocious Female Killers. I was reading it, and the article was titled A 12 O'Clock Girl in a 9 O'Clock Town. So uh, I really, really love the intro to this, this um, piece and this anthology, and uh, I think you'll love it too. To glimpse a murder from the past is to embark on a time-traveling visit to an exotic locale and to meet characters, whether victims or killers, who think, talk, and act differently from the way that we do. No case illustrates the foreignness of the past better than the 1927 murder of Eddie West in Lake County. 